0: I'm going to turn it on All right. Bye. I got enough going on up here, you know. I have. <laughs> That's good to see everybody tonight. Thank you so much for uh, coming out. Um, if you're visiting with us, um, I know the congregation is encouraged by our presence, and, and so am I. I appreciate you all coming out. I know some of you from... Some pretty far distances. Um, appreciate so much being with you guys, uh, getting to know so much uh, better some of you. i um, got a chance to eat lunch with uh, Paul and Kendall today. I uh, told Denise that they behaved and uh, had a good good time with his family uh, tonight. And um, I will tell you, when I put this shirt on tonight, it fit Sunday. I wore this shirt Sunday and it's not fitting all that great right now. So I try to eat healthy at home. That's That's hard sometimes when you're traveling for gospel meetings, and, uh, and I'm feeling it right now, but uh, I appreciate it so much. The hospitality and the uh, friendliness has, has just been wonderful, um, but more importantly, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ. He's the reason that we're all here tonight, right? I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be spending um, just about the majority of our time studying this letter this evening. To say that living in the first century uh, and being a Jew at the same time would, uh, that if that was hard would probably be an understatement. Uh, just about every neighboring nation looked on the Jews as a troublesome group of people, uh, which had been the case for hundreds of years prior to the coming of that new dispensation. But then there were also a constant thorn in the side of the Romans, who at that time were occupying Palestine. Uh, but to be a Jewish Christian... Uh, That was much worse, because not only would you have been ridiculed by the pagans, but fellow Jews who denied Jesus Christ would have also looked at you as a turncoat, making your life that much more difficult. What happens today when people forsake the world? What happens today when people forsake the world, uh, to become Christians, only to find themselves facing ridicule and persecution. Uh, Well, a lot of people are just going to fight on and it's going to make them stronger, but then there's going to be other people out there, and we've all seen them who decide that Christianity is just not worth it. And so they decide to sort of just go back to whatever culture, whatever lifestyle, whatever they were used to beforehand that provided them, uh, in their minds, more temporal comfort than what they're experiencing as Christians. But one of the strongest temptations for Jewish Christians in the first century was certainly to forsake Christianity uh, and to go back to Judaism And so I don't think it should surprise us that we find the letter recorded for us in the New Testament addressed specifically to Jewish uh, Christians in an attempt to try to encourage them to rise above the difficulties that they uh, faced and to stand by the hope of their calling. Usually when we're studying the book of Hebrews, uh, a lot of times we're told that the point of this letter is the superiority of Jesus Christ. That is not the point, though, of this book. That's not the point. The point of the book of Hebrews is don't go back. Don't give up. That's the point of the letter. Now, where the superiority of Christ comes into this is that that is the reason why you don't go back. You don't go back, you don't give up, because Christ is superior to anything and everything that we could ever go back to. And what the Hebrew writer does in the first about ten and a half chapters of this book is he's going to guide us through a series of contrasts in order to make this this point. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the Hebrew writer begins this big letter by saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, and so immediately as this letter begins, we see this contrast between how God used to speak uh, in the Old Testament uh, through the fathers, through the prophets, uh, then versus how He speaks now in past times. God spoke his will to men and prophets through visions and dreams. And these men of God uh, who he spoke through were faithful and they were true to the message that God delivered to them, though the message that was given was fragmented. But none of them could occupy or compare to the message that has now been delivered through the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, the one who would usher in the complete and full revelation of God. Who is this Son of God? The Hebrew writer goes on to say in verse 2, Whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, that brings us to the first major argument in the letter to the Hebrews. We've got Christ versus the angels. Now, angels were highly regarded by all the Jews as servants of the Almighty God. They they were holy, full of dignity, majestic If an angel appeared to us right now in this building, not in the human form, but but in the angelic, glorified form, we we would be trembling with fear and awe. We would all be down on our knees. We would just be so overcome by such a presence. In Old Testament times, men, men would have just fallen down. They would have tried to worship some of these angels as they did and to offer sacrifices to them, much to the angel's displeasure. And if an angel of God spoke a word from God, not only would there be fear on behalf of the one who was receiving the message, but you could be sure that every single thing that that angel said was going to come to pass. And so the Hebrew writer brings up angels for this reason. Let's see how these angels who you Jews so highly respect and praise and adore, let's see how they compare to Jesus. Verse (coughs) 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? God never said that to any angel, did he? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. God never said that to an angel either. Verse 6, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Here we see that these mighty angels, as powerful and as dignified as majestic as they were, they were commanded to worship Jesus Christ. In verse 7 And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Here we see that as powerful and as mighty as angels were, they were merely ministers. They're merely servants to God. But who is Christ? Verse 8 But of the Son, here's the contrast of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God for forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your ears will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You see the contrast? On one hand, we have these magnificent, powerful creatures called angels who who are just ministers and servants. And on the other hand, we have the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ, Lord over all, the very creator of both heaven and earth. And the angels of God were commanded to worship Him. Verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What we find here is that Christ holds a position far greater than any angel could ever attain to. But, what's the point of even making this comparison? All right, I mean, it's, it's great information, right? Christ is much greater than the angels. Alright, great information. What's the point of even saying that? Here's the point. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, he's saying, here's why I'm talking about all this. For this reason. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Here's the point. If every word spoken through an angel received a just penalty, or some of your translations say a just recompense of reward, how can we escape? if we neglect the message brought by Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself, there is no escape for those who forsake the Word of Christ who has been declared vastly superior to angels. Not if rejecting the Word of angels in the Old Testament was never gotten away with it. How are we going to get away with it if it's the Son of God? That's the point. That's the point of even comparing Jesus to the angels here. The Jews respected angels, respected their word, respected their might, so lest they think that by leaving Christ, by going back for something else, it would not have any effect on their souls. The Hebrew writer is saying, you better think again. Because there's not one word spoken by Jesus Christ that will come back to him yet. All right, now, what the author is going to do next, is he's going to take this very idea, and he's going to deal with, with what might be viewed as a flaw in that argument, as a a potential hole in that argument of Christ being so much superior to the angels. Uh, What what I mean is this. the, the The objection potentially would have been this. If Christ's position is so much greater and more superior to the position held by angels of heaven, what was he doing here on earth as a man? The Jews would have looked at that like it's a potential fall in the argument. Well, why? Well, let me ask this question. If you had the name one sin, don't answer out loud, but just think about it. If you had to think of one sin in the Old Testament that the Jews struggle with more than any other sin, what do you suppose that would be? I don't know what you're coming up with, but I, I, I think it's idolatry. I think they struggle with idolatry more than just about anything. And that's what worshiping a human being would have looked like to the Jews, right? Like a form of idolatry. And so the potential flaw in this argument is if Jesus really is divine, if he is so far superior to the angels of heaven that they would actually worship him, why did he come here to earth as a man? They would have looked at that as a flaw of the argument. Well, so what the Hebrew writer does is he takes what might have looked like a flaw in that argument And he turns it into a very powerful and a very emotional argument based on truth. And the way he does it is he begins in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6 by quoting from Psalm 8. He says this in Hebrews 2 verse 6. For he did not subject angels to the world to come concerning to which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, and this is where he quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. What these verses tell us is God's original plan was to put all things in subjection to man. But now look at the end of verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And you know why? The reason we don't see everything subjected to us is because it was God's plan for that to be fulfilled in Christ. The reason that Jesus Christ came down from his heavenly abode, down to this cesspool of sin, the reason that he became flesh was so that he might die for every man. It was going to take Jesus experiencing a human life and to be put to death and to be raised again in order for mankind to be saved through him. And that's what he begins talking about there in verse 14. He says in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become A merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is also able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. What he's saying is this ain't no flaw in the argument. This isn't some defect in the argument of Christ being more superior than the angels. Christ had to become a man so that he could taste death for every man. It wasn't angels who needed help on this earth. It was man. This was no weakness in the writer's argument. This was the ultimate sacrifice, brethren, that had to come down from heaven itself. And it is the reason why we are no longer subjected to, to bondage and subjected to fear because Christ came and gave himself to those who share, as a Hebrew writer will say, the faith and the humanity of Abraham. And he's pressing this point so hard for the Jews, and he's pressing it hard for us as well so that we might come to understand this sacrifice that Jesus made for us to, in, in its fullest extent. How could we even think of giving up? How could we even think about going back, of forsaking Christ for something else after all that that he went through for us? I mean, doesn't that sound pretty crazy? And that's exactly the point the Hebrew writer is trying to make. Okay, so angels were impressive to Jews, and that's why he's making this argument. But there were also some really impressive men in the Old Testament as well. If you had to pick the one man in the Old Testament that the Jews admired more than any other man. Who do you suppose that man might be? Well, there's probably a lot of men that might come to mind. King David, of course, would be one. Abraham would be another. Men like Josiah, Manasseh. No, I'm just kidding, Manasseh. He was riding to the core, right? Before, right? Uh, but, but there are certainly so many great men in the Old Testament the Jews admire. But i tell you, brethren, I, I don't know that there is one that they admired, in, in my humble opinion, probably more than Moses. I mean, Moses was very much admired by the Jews. And so what the Hebrew writers want to do now is he's going to say, okay, we talked about angels. You guys love angels. Why don't we talk about Moses now? Moses was as highly regarded of an individual in Hebrew history that you're ever going to find. He led these people out of Egyptian bondage as the lawgiver. He, he was the epitome of weakness. And yet, what the Hebrew writer is going to do in chapter 3 is he's going to give them two reasons why Jesus Christ is even better than Moses. First of all, in chapter 3, in verses 1 and 2, the Hebrew writer tells us that both Moses and Jesus were faithful in all of God's house. There's no question about the faithfulness of either of these two men. But then the Hebrew writer goes on to say that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because Jesus built the house and the builder of the house is more worthy of honor than the house itself. You know, we drive by beautiful homes and uh, maybe a very wealthy neighborhood and, and we admire what we see. Who, who deserves the credit for that house being beautiful? Do we drive by a house and go, oh, that's a, that's a wise house. We we, we don't say that, do we? We don't admire the house itself for what it is. We admire the one who built the house. See, as great as Moses was, the Hebrew writer is making the point that he's only a part of the house of God. But Christ both designed and he built the house. And because of that, he's worthy to receive more glory. The second argument he makes is, suppose within this beautiful house, there's a faithful servant. And there is the owner's son, and he's also very faithful. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house, according to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7, one of the most faithful. But Christ wasn't just faithful as a servant, was he? Christ was faithful as a son, as God's only son over the house that he built. So in their temptation, in the Jews' temptation to forsake Christianity for Judaism, these Jews were about to put their faith in a servant over the Son. But the Hebrew writer warns them in verse 6 that they are only going to get to stay in God's house if they hold fast to God's Son, through whom is their confidence in the boast of their hope. hope. Now, here's the main point of this. Remember I said that the Hebrew writer wasn't just comparing Jesus to angels just to give us a bunch of information that you want. No, he's trying to make a point by these comparisons. What's the point of comparing Christ to Moses? It begins in verse 7 and continues on throughout chapter 4. Here's the point in a nutshell. Moses was indeed a great leader. Led Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And then the Israelites, they had all these great spiritual advantage under (laughs) Moses' leadership, right? But as great of a leader as Moses was, what happened to those Israelites in the wilderness? They fell. They fell under the leadership of a man like Moses. They fell in the wilderness. And if those under Moses, who was a lesser servant of God, fell because of unbelief, what will happen to us if we become guilty of unbelief when we're being led by the Son of God himself? That's the point. You want to talk about a heinous sin? That's it. Giving up, going back when we are being led by the Son of God himself. And so the encouragement in chapter 4 and verse 1 is, therefore, Hebrews 4 verse 1, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. In other words, be diligent that you enter this rest, so that you don't fall away because of the same examples of disobedience. That's the point. Okay. Now, these two arguments, Christ versus the angels, Christ versus Moses, that covers most of four chapters <laughs> in the Hebrews. Chapters 5 through 10, I can't cover it as slowly as I did the first four chapters. We're going to be here about two hours. Y'all are like going to start throwing stuff at me. I don't want to do that. So what I want to do is I just want to look at chapters 5 through 10 very quickly. I just want to look at three things very quickly in this chapter. Uh, three more comparisons in detail. Uh, and the first one is going to be the high priesthood. We're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at the Tabernacle. And then we're going to look at the sacrifices. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to make sure that we get the point. First of all, in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 as well, he talks about the high priesthood. Now, who was the high priesthood in the Old Testament? It was Moses' brother Aaron, right? Aaron was the first high priest that was ordained by God. Now, this was a system, this high priesthood. It was a system that God came up with in which there would be a mediator, an intercessor, between God and man. But it was far from a perfect system. There were flaws in this system from the very beginning when the high priest was ordained. From the very first day that Aaron wore those linen white garments, do you know what every Israelite would have or should have observed about him? They should have been thinking, here is our mediator between us and God, and one day he's going to die. And you know what? He did die. Aaron did die. And then his son Eleazar took his place as high priest, and he wore those priestly garments. And then later on, Eleazar died as well, didn't he? And then his son Phineas wore it, and on and on and on and on. The fact that there was this continual succession of high priests, brethren, that made it pretty obvious that they didn't yet have The perfect high priest, which is ideally what you would want in a system such as this in order for it to work the way that it should. But here's what's so amazing. I know I told you that we were going to be in the book of Hebrews most of our time, but look in Psalm 110 very quickly. Psalm 110. Here's what's so amazing. A thousand years before Christ ever came to earth, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words in Psalm 110 and verse 4. And here's what he said. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And without going into that in a lot of detail, what it means is that God's intention was never to leave the Levitical priesthood as it was, where you had one high priest dying after another in a constant succession. And then think about that little gap in between where there was no high priest, when they were about needing to ordain the next one because the previous one just died. And then you don't have a mediator for that small amount of time. It was never God's intention for that to remain. God, in the meantime, was preparing a perfect high priest. One in which death's grip could not hold, but who would live forever to make intercession between God and man. And that high priest was Jesus Christ. But the fact that they died, that wasn't the only reason that made the Levitical priesthood so imperfect. It was also imperfect because of the character of the men in these roles. These high priests were sinners, were they not? From Aaron all the way down the line, the high priest committed sins before God. So think about how concerning it would be for a, a man to mediate before God. And what he's basically saying as he's making intercession is, Here I am, a sinner, making intercession on behalf of these sinners. That, that's a bit cringeworthy to think about, isn't it? So before Aaron could ever go in and make atonement for the sins of Israel, he had to make atonement for his all sins, just as Eleazar did and all the rest of them. But in the case of Jesus, he did not begin his term as high priest until after his death, and then he rose to never to die again, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and he never had to make atonement for his sin because he had no sin. Jesus Christ was completely sinless, And that's why back in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, the Hebrew writer could tell us, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because in Jesus, we can have confidence that our sins are forgiven and our prayers are heard. And that mercy will be extended by virtue of not our character, not on the virtue of some dying man or some sinful man, but on the virtue of the one who continues to intercede for us day after day. So why on earth, if I'm a Jew, would I reject that high priest in Jesus who is far more superior to those high priests of old? Why would I go back? Why would I give up? I mean, that's kind of silly to think about. And yet that was their temptation. And then there's a tabernacle to consider, uh, which he begins talking about in chapters uh, 8 and 9. You know, if, if you were a priest coming into the holy place day after day, and I, I just I just imagine myself in that situation, being honored to be in that situation, I, I'm going into the holy place, and I'm, I'm, you know, tending to the showbread, tending to the lamp, tending to the altar of incense. Well, what's in my mind every single time that I enter that holy place? You know what's in my mind? I'm thinking... Man, there's that veil. And right on the other side of that veil is the Ark of the Covenant and that mercy seat. And that's where God's presence is dwelling. And I just don't think you could have been a spiritually minded priest without thinking, Boy, I'd love to go back there. Oh, I'd love to be there, right, standing right there in the presence of God. God, that'd be great. But you could never You could never go back there as long as that uh, dispensation lasted. You were forbidden. No ordinary priest could go back there. Only the high priest was allowed to go back there, and that was only one time of the year on the Day of Atonement. And this isn't in the Bible, what I'm about to tell you, but according to Jewish history, they would tie a rope around the high priest's waist when he went back there just in case he did something wrong. God struck him down. They didn't have to go back there and get him. They could just drag him out with the rope. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us that, but the Jewish tradition does. That's just how, how fearsome it was just to be back there where God himself is but also think about this think about what the tabernacle must have looked like the very day that it was set up for the first time have you ever thought about the fact that you could have probably walked around that tabernacle and looked at it and you could have probably noticed a scratch maybe a tear some defect, some fault you know why that's the case That was the case because this earthly tabernacle that was set up during the day of Moses, it was decaying from the first day that it was erected because it was corruptible and it could not last forever. And because it could not last forever, just as those ordinary high priests could not last forever, for that very reason, it was never intended that they would last forever, not the tabernacle. But now, 1 Peter 2 and verse 5 tells us that we, Christian, we've become priests of God, and now we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, and he doesn't have to worry about just going into the most holy place one time a year. He lives there. He lives there, right at the right hand of God, always in the presence of God, making intercession for us daily. He lives there, in the holy place. And you know what else he has told us, brethren? He said... That one day we're going to join right there in the presence of God. The point is, why would we give that up? Why, why would we go back? Why would we go back to this inferior tabernacle when we have the perfect tabernacle waiting for us in heaven? I mean, doesn't that sound pretty foolish that we would give that up, that we, we would go back? You know, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, we we act like it was the real tabernacle. It wasn't even the real tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, brethren, it, it was a model. It was just a model and could not do what the real tabernacle in heaven can do. But we have an eternal tabernacle waiting for us, and this high priest that we serve, Jesus Christ, is granting us privileges that Old Testament priests never could. Why would we pass that up? And then very quickly, there there were the sacrifices. How many sacrifices do you think were offered in the Old Testament? I mean, millions, billions of sacrifices. I can't even fathom. I think about alone how many sacrifices were offered at the dedication of the temple. When Solomon had that thing built, it just blows my mind. But just so many. I can't even comprehend the number. So imagine the perception of these Jewish people year after year after year as they witness countless animal sacrifices taking place i i just have to think that the only conclusion that could have been drawn is we just don't have the perfect sacrifice yet because we just we have to keep doing this over and over again surely the ultimate sacrifice has not yet arrived but when jesus died on the cross he supplied us with a sacrifice who's Worth could never be exhausted, whose worth could never be diminished, accomplishing what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. And if we have that kind of sacrifice that came from heaven, how could we give up on that and go back to the blood of bulls and goats? How could we give up that sacrifice for anything else? It doesn't, brethren, it doesn't matter if the subject is Judaism or not, how could we give up the sacrifice of Jesus for anything? Alright, now, some of you are wondering right now, what in the world is this dude talking about? Why is he telling us about all this, this Judaism stuff? I'm not a Jew. I, I don't have to worry about going back there. I, I'm not here thinking that anybody in here came in here to this D.C. and said, well, I need to be here at church. I, I, for about an hour today, I was really tempted to go back to the tabernacle over there. In I, I'm not under that impression at all. So some of you might be wondering, well, where, where are we going with this? Well, here's where we're going with this. The, the authors logically made his point to Jews, Right? He's he's logically shown us why it's ridiculous to forsake Christ given how superior he is to anything and everything we might go back to. But what he's going to do now in Hebrews chapter 11 is he's going to try to pierce our hearts by asking us to practically consider the faith and the perseverance of some of the greatest Bible characters of old. And I want to look at just three of them and then the lesson is going to be yours. And I think you're going to see why we're doing this. I will talk about Noah in Hebrews 11, verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7 says that by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You've got to imagine what it must have been like to everybody, to, to everybody during that time to just be going about their daily business, working, going home, getting up, going to work, doing what they do, and here's Noah out here building this gigantic boat. I mean, he's building this big boat. Why is he doing it? He's doing it because God warned him about things he had not yet seen, things that were going to occur during his lifetime. You see, Noah walked by faith and not by sight. In other words, what the Hebrew writer is telling us here is that Noah was given a choice. And he was given the same choice that everyone else had. And Peter also tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And because that generation had the same choice whether to live for God or to live for themselves, Noah, the Hebrew writer tells us, became the proof for why they stood condemned you know what the lesson is for us in that? The lesson is, we all made a choice too, didn't we? When we obeyed the gospel. Didn't we? We made a choice. Nobody forced us. If if somebody forced you to obey the gospel, the invitation tonight is you come forward and and you do it again, and you make it your choice. Because that is not a choice that anybody can make for you. But if you have obeyed the gospel, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you made the same choice that Noah did. You really did. Don't you think people were laughing at him for that choice? I mean, he's doing this thing that nobody had ever done before. You know people are laughing at him, making fun of him, mocking him, ridiculing him. Do you think he ever thought about going back? Yeah, I bet he did. I bet for 120 years, Noah was building that boat, he thought about giving it up. Because you know why? Because he was not superhuman. He was human, just like you and me. You ever thought about giving up and going back? Uh, We're not building figurative, uh, literal boats, but we're building figurative ones, aren't we? We're doing things that other people look down on us for, that other people mock us for, that other people ridicule us for. We've tried to preach the gospel out there. We know what it's like to be rejected when we try to talk to people about Jesus Christ. We know what it means to be called names like Campbellites and things of that nature. We know what it feels like to be called self-righteous, to be accused of being judged. All the same kind of things that were probably happened to Noah back then. But the point that the Hebrew writer is making is while he was doing this and while he was being ridiculed, while he was lying, he stood by his choice. He did not go give up. He did not go back. And if we respect Noah, if we love and respect him and we honor him for the choice that he made, we should not give up and go back either. Because we've also made a choice. He stood his ground. You stand your ground too. And if you respect what who Noah is, if you respect his determination... Do what he did. Stand by your choice. In the midst, in the midst of adversity. You see where the writer's going here? Let's think about Abraham. The very next verse in verse 8. By faith Abraham. Verse 8. When he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and love this. he went out not knowing where he was going. He had no idea. Abraham didn't know. When Abraham began his journey in faith this text tells us that he had no idea where that faith would take him. He didn't know. God didn't tell him where he was going. Abraham, you know what he had to do, brother? It's real simple. He had to do the same thing you and I had to do when we obeyed the gospel. He had to do it by faith. and We had no idea, some of us. We just had no idea where our faith was going to take us. I didn't. Did you? You think if somebody told me 30 years ago I'd be standing up preaching the gospel in the pulpit, you think I would have believed that? I had no idea where my faith was going to take me. Abraham didn't either. Do you think you ever thought about going back? It's not like God struck down the ur after he left it. Abraham could have gone back. Do you ever think he was tempted to do it? Um, when I was in South Africa preaching, I've uh, been there twice, but the first time was in 2002. Um, I was preaching in a little um, in a little city called Richards Bay. It's in northeastern South Africa. Uh, uh where the Zulus live, and they were meeting um, in a library in Richards Bay. And I, I was with a brother named Scott Tope. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him. Known Scott for years. Um, and as we were greeting some brethren, there walked in a 16-year-old young Zulu girl who had black eyes, a busted nose. She looked like somebody just just beat her up tremendously. And so I asked God, I said, what happened to that young girl? Apparently, she had just obeyed the gospel uh, just a few days beforehand, and when she went home and she told her parents what she had done, they beat her. And then they brought in two men from their Zulu tribe to beat her, and they raped her. And the parents tried to intimidate her into giving up Christianity, and she would not do it. And they kicked her out of the house and said, don't ever come back. And I saw her just a few days after all that happened while she was recovering. And she had, she had moved in with some of the brethren in that church. They became her family at that point. You think she had any idea where her faith was going to take her? You think she ever thought about going back? I think she ever thought about giving up? Yeah, I bet she did. But when I went back to South Africa in 2015, I took my wife with me. I didn't get a chance to go up to Richard Bay, but I did ask about this girl. She's doing good. She's, she's got her own family, her own children. And I just think, all the stupid, silly reasons, brethren, that we have for giving up on Christianity. Somebody hurt my feelings in the church. I'll not be ashamed of ourselves. We just have no idea what it's like in another places in the world. And that's the point that I think he's making about Abraham. Abraham, he could have gone back if he really wanted to. He could have gone back to the year of Chaldea. That's where his heart was. God wouldn't have stopped him. But the point is he didn't go back. He stayed the course. God was taking him. And he, of course he went through countless trials... But the point is, Abraham didn't give up. He didn't go back. He was looking for a city with foundations. And the point is, if if, if we admire Abraham, how about this, if we admire that young girl thousands of miles away who made a choice much more difficult than most of us are going to have to make in our life, if we admire her for what she did, how about we don't go back for inferior reasons to what she had to go through? And then finally, Moses, of course. Let's just go back to Moses. Uh, Verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of heaven, for he was looking to the reward." I don't think any of us are going to know what it was like being Moses growing up in Pharaoh's house. I mean, with all the luxuries that came with that kind of sophisticated living. And yet, Moses gave up everything that men counted value. And he became a giant of faith as a result. Why did Moses make a choice that involved prolonged struggle and adversity? The text tells us he was looking ahead. And you know what? When you're looking ahead, you know where you're not looking, you ain't looking back. When you're looking ahead, when you're focused on the cross, when you're focused on reward, you're not looking back, brethren. And that's why Moses didn't go back. Moses mind, uh, was mindful that glory yet to come. And he leaned on that in times of trouble. Do you admire Moses for that? Do you read about Moses and the 40 years of wandering and how he was so mistreated by those brethren? Do Do you admire him for how he stood up for those sinful brethren, even when they were trying to kill him? Do you admire him for how he persevered? Well, he didn't go back. So the question is, will we follow his example and look ahead instead of looking back? He didn't give up. He didn't go back. And neither should we. Folks, there was always an easy way out available to these men and women that Hebrews 11 talks about. All those struggles, all those tortures would have stopped if they would have merely denounced their faith. But they did not give up. Again, we think our trials are so tough, we think we can't handle them. But we're told that these men resisted to the point of bloodshed. See, try being spread over a table and sawed in half, which the Hebrew writer alludes to, and he doesn't tell us uh, the name, but Jewish history tells us that this was Isaiah at the hands of Manasseh. I don't know if that's true. That's not in the Bible. That's what history tells us. But try having rocks thrown at your body until you die, like Stephen had happen to him in Acts 7. Try being dragged to death. That's what they say happened to Mark by the people of Alexandria, the Jewish history. Try being led down a road having to carry a tree that you created with your own hands. Only to have your hands and feet nailed to them as our Lord did. And yet even our Lord didn't go back. And you now know why our Lord didn't go back? Hebrews 12 tells us exactly why he didn't go back. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 3. It tells us, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why did Jesus not go back? Because he was looking ahead. For the joy set before him. That's what we're told. We think we have it so rough. We think our trials are so bad. And folks, I say this to my shame. We've got it made compared to them. We really do. And I think for that reason more, we need to hold steadfast. What we have in this letter to the Hebrews is, is, is not an exhaustive history on, on Jewish rites and, and, and the Jewish Levitical system and all that. I know that's how sometimes we think about it and we go to the book of Hebrews, like, oh, man, this is a hard book. Folks, that's not the point. the point. The point of the book of Hebrews is not to learn about Judaism. The point of the book of Hebrews is that he's giving us incentive why we should never go back and why we should never give up. And that's my encouragement to you tonight. Brethren, don't give up. Don't let the failure of church members cause you to give up. Don't let church troubles cause you to give up. Don't let things that are going on in your personal life that are pulling you down cause you to give up. Don't let health difficulties cause you to give up. Brethren, nothing in this world should ever come between us and our Maker and our Redeemer. My encouragement to you tonight is to live with faith worth imitating. Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that's what Christians are to be. We're thick skinned, we're tough. And let's go out there and be that way as we encounter a hostile world, a world that's hostile to our faith. Let's show them that we live for Christ. And to live to Christ is is the best thing we could ever do. You're here tonight, and um, if you're not a Christian, of course, we would encourage you to consider starting this journey. This will be the best journey you're ever going to start. There's nothing else you're going to do in this life that is going to ever be greater than becoming a child of God himself. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of your sins and start living a life anew and you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, we can baptize you back here for the forgiveness of your sins. And I understand because I'm human and I've been here too that there's been temptations to go back in this room because I've been tempted to go back. You're here tonight, and you feel overwhelmed. If something's going on in your life, and you feel like after all the prayers that you've uttered, you, you just can't seem to stick it, or, and you just feel like Christianity might not be something you want to seriously consider, please don't leave here tonight without letting us know how we might be able to help you. And we invite like you to come forward and let us know, so we can all pray for you together. If you don't feel inclined to do that, we'd like to talk to one of us in private. Uh, we, we want to help you. We all have the same goal here: is trying to get to heaven. You, it's our job for all eternity. Let us help you do that tonight, while we stand, while we stand. Boo!